Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 56 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the history of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like ponds, hedges and goats. Or fate, late, the concept of late, lateness, and the great. Mm. Um, that's great as in the fire great, rather oh. than uh, great man, woman. Uh, razor, lasers, and wasters. I couldn't quite think of a, a third one that rhymed. Maybe phasers. I definitely want to do phasers. the history of lasers. That lasers. sounds amazing. That would be great. And we'll be following the links to our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of handwriting is in fact all about American independence, empire and collecting. Mm. It's about manuscript hunters. I didn't know that. Although the history of ears, the history of ears is about, wait for it, is about corners, alligators and bar snacks. <laughs> I'm not, I think that, I, to be honest, I think that's just nonsense. I have <laughs> no idea. True. I have no idea where it we're is, going with it that. Is but it sounds about corners. But it sounds good. Um, the man sitting opposite me is the toothpick of time. <laughs> It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the general of general knowledge. Ah. It is the truly wonderful Dr Sam Willis. And hello to yourself. Thank you very much. Hello, hello. We kind of take turns, don't we, each week leading with an interesting historical subject, which you might assume does not have a history. Yes. And um, this is part of our series on the history of writing books. And the history well, now, why, of writing. why are we doing the history of writing ah, books, Sam? Interesting that you ask that question, mm. James. It's because we are currently writing the book Histories of the Unexpected. Histories of the Unexpected. Uh-huh. What, a, what a good idea. Yes, and it'll be in the shops December 2018. Uh, possibly even before. Possibly. Uh, and the reason why is because I, we think it will make such a good Christmas present uh, <laughs> for everyone that you know in the world. So we are doing a little kind of potted history of all sorts of things to do with writing. And today we are going to do codes. Codes. Yeah. And of course, codes don't just have to be about writing. It will be our starting point. But let's so let's immediately be, take off from there. I mean, a code is basically where you have a shared set of assumptions, whether they be written, whether they be visual, that people will understand and that denote a particular meaning, a meaning that is shared and understood between at least two people. So, for example... Not the same as a language. Languages are, in a way, codes. They are, aren't they? You are communicating through language. But when people talk about codes, they mean secret codes. So codes that that aren't universal, that are understood by a small number. So it might be spies. And this is where the history of codes suddenly opens up this sort of amazing array of history that you can trace, you know, all the way back to classical antiquity and codes there, messengers being sent with um, tattoos on their head and arriving at the destination where the code is is meant to be understood and having their head shaved, okay. all the way through to Enigma in the Second World War and drugs gangs in South America with code microcodes right. written on tiny slips of paper stuffed in a condom and 
uh, inserted into a body pos- cavity posteriorly. Hmm. Is that a word? Posteriorly, it should be. Yes, it should be. If um, not, so it does cover all sorts of things. I like this idea of the language being a code, though. Yes, particularly. But you have different types of codes, um, and they change across time. And, I, and, and as you say, they they open up all sorts of windows into the past, which is pretty much I mean, what a we really do. Big, I mean, anthropologists talk about codes that are embedded in culture, and when we looked at scars, yeah. You have to sort of decode the meaning of scars that are understood by, a, say, a particular tribe. And this got me thinking that in some ways that's what historians do. We are code crackers. We decode the past. Because if you think about a lot of the things, cultural happenings, social goings on that happened in the past are sometimes quite alien from today. And so part of what, what the historian's job is actually thinking themselves back into former times and to be able to sort of decode or, or understand or interpret, you know, it's become um, quite different a, practices. It's quite a big buzzword in the media and certainly in terms of public history. Yes. Uh, so can you decode that painting? Do you have the tool set to decode that painting? Yeah. Or, or, or you know, if someone famously decodes a Leonardo da Vinci drawing, yes. um, it it'd become a bit of a buzzword post-Da Vinci code as well Ooh. and mysterious. Yes. So I think we're probably living in an excellent era of the code. Yes. Historians are doing that. Yes. I don't like the word decode myself. I think it... um, Do not interpret, read, understand. What I don't like about it, it is used blindly to suggest a certain type of reading of a piece of art or a work of any kind of description that may not have been deliberately invested with a code. That's what bothers me about it. Mm-hmm. It's the assumption that someone has deliberately hidden something inside it and that you need to decode it to, oh, to, to understand it. The, the Baconian ciphers throughout Shakespeare. For example. Yes. We might talk about that a yes. bit more later. Um, so an artist might create something, might paint something that actually can be interpreted by lots of different people in lots of different ways across lots of different cultures and lots of different times. It's not like the artist has actually necessarily, I mean, some might have done, but put in a code and then deliberately obfuscated it so that only academic historians can give you the answer until what that code is. I'm getting increasingly annoyed about this now because <laughs> I've just realised just how annoying it is. And elitist so, nonsense. It is elitist nonsense and it is, it is the assumption that there is a conscious, deliberate, single interpretation of mm. a work of art that you either know or you don't know, yeah. which is the opposite of, I think, how historians should work. And it's also, I think, the opposite of how the public should react to art. Yeah. The whole yeah. point is, is it's to do with what you think about. It's your own personal code, if you want, but it's how you interpret it. It's being able to read different meanings into something on different levels. It's not about getting it or not getting it yeah. because you, yeah. you've suddenly discovered the single important code. Yeah. And um, I think, coming back to the Da Vinci Code, that's why the Da Vinci Code's been massively unhelpful to history. Boom. Goodness <laughs> me. Rant I, I want to come back at you on the, the whole um, decoding paintings and things. I think in some ways it's the language that we're using of, of decoding that is 
the problem there. Say you were looking at a Renaissance masterpiece. Yeah. You know, Renaissance artists would use certain ways of communicating in painting. So you think about the iconographies, you know, depicting, say, a sieve, for example, has a particular meaning. Or So there are ways of sort of of interpreting it and, and giving sort of further meaning to it. Understanding symbolism, yeah. yeah. But where I want to go with this, to start us off, since we're interested in written forms, is just talking a little bit about how they work. I have read hundreds of coded letters and cipher systems and cipher alphabets and keys and codes. Is that codes because and... of the period you work in? Are there some periods which are more susceptible, more common to have codes in? Because I'm thinking about it and I don't think there are. Is it because it's the period that I'm working yeah, in? Do you reckon that, yeah, you're an early modernist, do you reckon that there are more codes in percentage of surviving written documents in that period? Or do you reckon more people were involved in code? No, I think it's because I was writing a book on, about codes. Uh, with, which had a chapter on secret letters. Yeah. Having said that, there it's is... It's an interesting question. There is, it is a very interesting question, and there is something happening in the Renaissance period, so from 1500 onwards, that basically meant that we see an increasing amount of communication in secret. OK, so, so I reckon and, it's going to be to do with internal struggle and crisis, yes. whether it's yes. religious confrontation... It's the Reformation! It is Reformation <laughs> yes. again. Whether it's religious confrontation or civil yeah. war. Yes. Um, so yes. particularly, I reckon, civil wars. There was loads yes. of codes in the uh, American Revolutionary yes, War. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as was in the English Civil it, War. It's two opposing parties who want to keep things secret but from who are living other. cheek by jowl who are living cheek by jowl or wanting to communicate we should do the history of cheeks and jowls the cheeks and jowls jowls would, would be, be brilliant yes. <laughs> the history of cheeks or cheekiness um but yeah it, effectively in a very basic way one a wants to communicate to b without c knowing yeah um and so you develop a kind of code so that's an example of it being in a kind of situation of yeah. tension. But of course you can have fun codes and yes. you can have yes, absolutely. codes of, of love. Absolutely. Probably the the majority of codes that you find throughout history tend to be associated with government, diplomacy, with business and so wanting to encrypt certain things. I mean, nowadays, banking, for example, you know, and the internet is all sort of, you know, lots of that is is encrypted. So it tends to be sort of very formal and official. But yeah, you're quite right. You know, children would use simple codes to sort of play little games. And if you have a look at little books aimed at children across history, they're getting them to sort of play little sort of spy games with codes. But I mean, even sarcasm, I suppose, is a slight kind of form of code, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's a very sort of simple yes. one. So if you, you might be at a party with your partner and one of you is really not having very much fun at all and, and your, your partner wants over goes, Sam, how is everything going? You'd be... I'm having a really good lovely time. weather. We're but having. you can do it in such a subtle way that yes. only someone who lives with you and has lived with you for 20 years can yes. realise you are lying through your teeth. Funny, funny you might say that. That was exactly what I thought about. I was out to dinner with um, <laughs> with relations recently and I knew that the two of them were so bored with what I mean. I, I think I'm a relatively interesting no. person. But they have. <laughs> were you have, talking to them about they, they did, No, no, no. They did a little gesture where they touched their ear. And I could see the two of them looking at each other. And I knew that I didn't know what that code was. 
I knew that it you was, didn't come out well. I knew that it was rude. <laughs> I knew that it was rude. It's like what the hell is he? Doing? You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it can be gestures like that, and and likewise, a couple who are at a dinner party and not having fun communicate that they want to leave very quickly by you know okay. doing something or other. I don't have you've an never official. Do, you've code, never but... done that. No, we're we're leaving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the slap of the wrist. No, and there's I suppose touching toes. Oh, touching toes. Yeah, it's body language as well. Body language and gesture. Yeah. That's all a code, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> I'm incredibly tired. Yes, <laughs> I'm very, very, very exhausted and bored. On yeah. to the important business. This sounds amazing. Pulling us back. You have in front of you, you should have a oh. piece of paper, yeah. uh, which in fact is Mary Queen of Scots cipher alphabet she had her own personal one she had her own personal one and i'll I'll talk a little bit more about that but i think this is really good to just explain how a basic code would have worked so you talk about a cipher system so you start with an alphabet give me a date for this this is sort of 1570s, 1580s. Okay. Um, and why would have had a series. Mary Queen of Scots need a code? Mary Queen of Scots is imprisoned. She is a Catholic queen who is under house arrest in England. And she has been kicked out of Scotland because of her religion, so by Protestants in Scotland. And she is a threat to Elizabeth because Elizabeth is Protestant and there are Catholics, not only in England, but also on the continent, who would like to see Elizabeth assassinated and Mary put on the throne. So Mary has a a cipher so that she can communicate with her supporters. It's like an Eskimo and she has 35 different words (laughs) rather than snow, but for help. (laughs) Get me out of here! So what we we have in this cipher system, you have an alphabet. Mm. And as you can see at the very top of this manuscript, you've got A to Z. Notice there's no J because in the 16th century, I and J were interchangeable, uh, as were U and V. So it's 24 letters. And then what you have is you have an alphanumeric, so so letters and numbers or symbols, an alphanumeric or symbolic system which represents the alphabet. A very simple one would be um, A to Z, um, A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and that you use a, a sort of very simple. But also what you put in there is a series of nulls or red herrings. You might use the number 33, Uh, which means nothing. You just put it in there to confuse people. Because the way in which codes are cracked is basically by um, analysing them for frequency. Patterns. For patterns. Um, I mean, it's something that you'd now do by computer, but in the past, it would literally take hours, you know, almost like like using a, a sort of crossword puzzle. So we've got the basic alphabet. You then have what is called a polyalphabetical system. So effectively, you have more than one alphabet. And what we've got here, you can see that here, well, rather than just one alphabet that she's using, you've got a series of four alphabets so that you can change it. You can change it at different times or halfway through. Mm-hmm. Now, what you need for that is also a key, God. a key that tells you that I am going to use alphabet number one, number two, number three, or number four. So you can mix it up and you can mix it up within the system. So that's your cipher alphabet. Then you've also got your codes. And this is what you were talking about earlier on, about actually in the last podcast that we did on the unexpected history of handwriting. You're talking about coming up with certain 
uh, key words, like names, places, dates, that you denote by particular symbols. Yep. So it may be red sky at night means the Japanese are, you know, have invaded a bombed Pearl Harbor or so, something like that. Uh, obviously not in the 16th century. Uh, that would be woefully anachronistic. <laughs> but basically that's the very sort of simple way that it worked. In the Renaissance period, we've got a lot of writing and development of these ideas. It's a really sort of heady time for this. It's partly connected to Renaissance humanism, but it's also, you know, what we were saying about earlier on, this is a really turbulent time in politics. Lots of wars, lots of religious disputes, and people were very interested in these kinds of written systems to communicate in a, in a secret way. We have the development of the cipher wheel just going back to this, this is yes. interesting. So, so this is a way of reading Mary, Queen of Scots code. Yes. Right, you'd assume that this was, should have been kept secret. Yes. So has someone broken the code and written this down, or is this Mary's, the thing she has on her blackboard in her secret room? The, to, the thing is, in order, in order for a code to work, a code system to work, not only does she need it, or more, more correctly, her secretaries need it, yeah. but also the people that you're writing to need it. So they need to be able to understand it at the other end. So the problem is if you're then somebody under surveillance, you know, you confiscate the code. Um, it's okay. Do we, know, do, do we know where this has come from? I mean, it's ambassador. A, it's a this state paper. This thing. is in the state papers. So I'm assuming this has been confiscated by Walsingham and his master cryptographer, a fascinating character, Thomas Phillips. Okay. This really sort of sunken face, but brilliant, brilliant mind who cracked like the Armada Code. Uh. He, he then sort of gets into trouble around the gunpowder plot just before and is, is imprisoned as a double agent. But he's, oh my God, he's got this sort of amazing. You know, sort of the Armada code's pretty important, paperwork. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I, I think we could write a book on that called the Tudor Enigma. Ooh, I've just copyrighted that by saying yes. it. No one else can steal that Good. idea. Tudor Enigma. Ooh, like it. Note that one down. So I've done a little Where bit of thinking codes? about codes, and um, for me, codes are all about the Antarctic soundscape. Now that is unexpected, <laughs> isn't it? Just Daybell gives us sort of plain old codes. Yes, and how so, they work. Uh, Sam comes up with the Antarctic soundscape. Antarctic soundscape. Have you heard of Douglas Mawson? I have not heard of Douglas Mawson. The tell famous me, Tudor politician. No, that's a joke. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <It's not. laughs> I was about to correct your pronunciation, yeah, Morrison. Morrison. <laughs> no, Douglas Mawson. So he's an explorer, and he is one of these famous explorers from the kind of heroic age of, of Antarctic exploration. He was born in 1880, and he did most of his great stuff kind of the same era as Shackleton. Right. Okay. So just before or sort of during the First World War, 1911-ish, mm. up to 14, was one of his most famous ones, the Aurora Expedition, um, where he goes from Australia south to explore the bit of Antarctica that's directly south of Australia that no one knows anything about. Mm. So he deliberately doesn't go and, and try and find the, the, the South Pole. He kind of removes himself from that. And um, it's really, um, um, really interesting expedition. Um Oh, it's one of these kind of horrific survival stories. So they, they, they go off mapping the coastline and, and everyone dies, the dogs End die. eating each other. More or less. But he, yep. he, he survives. He's the only right. one that kind of comes back and it's been described as the, you know, the greatest survival story ever. And it's certainly up there with all of the ones you know. But what's really good about it is that his diaries survive mm. and he was interested in noises. And 
this matters. Bear with me here. The difference between what, what was known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, which is where it's defined principally by having very few resources and very limited technology. And then it changes from the sort of 1920s onwards where you've got uh, greater transport, you've got greater communication. But Mawson, Douglas Mawson, was exploring at the time where, where it was absolutely changing. And you can, you can kind of map this change by thinking about the soundscape, what he was listening to in his hut during the Aurora expedition. And we know that actually in 1912-1913, they were trying to communicate with Australia through wireless telegraphy, which was done with Morse code. Ah, that's where you're going. That's where I'm going with it. Now, there's a list of really interesting noises that they were listening to. (laughs) Are you going to play us some? Fabulous. No, I wish I could, actually. Um, We'll do that next time. You've got the natural noises they're listening to outside the hut in Antarctica, and there's a lot lot of wind. Do you want me to make the noises? Yes, please. Can I? uh, (laughs) Antarctic wind. And now I would like a fox eating a penguin. That's very good. Um, These are compared with noises inside the hut. Um, There's a list here with an. How do you spell that? How do you pronounce that? A C E T Y L E N E. It's a type of lighting. Acetylene. Someone tell me. Get in touch. Acetylene lighting in operation, music playing through the gramophone or an improvised band. (laughs) Um, The air tractor engine running. I don't know what an air tractor is. Lathe operating. Welding. And the tide gauge clock. Yes. So this I really like. Okay, before I get to codes, what annoyed these people more than anything else was their clock. And we've done the history of clocks, but we didn't do being anno- the history of being Annoying annoyed clocks. by oh, clocks. Oh, I've been annoyed by clocks my I, entire I have life. As well. There we are. The most chronic sufferer throughout the vicissitudes of temperature was the clock belonging to Beige's tide gauge. Every sleeper in the hut who was sensitive to ticking... Are you sensitive to ticking? I am very sensitive Sometimes. to Sometimes. Knew and reviled that clock. So often was it subjected to warm curative treatment in various resting places that it was hunted from pillar to post. <laughs> These guys are bored. <laughs> a radical operation by Corel. The insertion of an extra spring became necessary at last. So, uh, yeah, they've driven up the wall by clocks and ticking. Um, if you're interested in that, listen to our podcast on clocks. It's my favourite one out of all of the ones we've done, with the exception of rubbish and graffiti. <laughs> oh, I love those two. This all changes 1913 and they finally managed to communicate with australia and from that moment on morse code morse code becomes a new sound in antarctica it has never been heard before and from that moment Ah. on it becomes predominant in the soundscape of exploration so the first message sent from antarctica was actually received in australia they were doing a bit of tongue in cheek. They weren't expecting it to get through. <laughs> I'm going to do the. I'm going to do the. The um, this is this is the code. Oh, so so hang on. <laughs> Are you following this? Yep. <laughs> I want. I want a translation. Get me out of here now. That's half of it. My my knuckles. I'd quite it. like a hot coffee. Um, it is translated as "We are sorry for poor Lazeron, who, who was one who, of the people on the expedition. Who died? No, no. They were just messing around in the hut. They thought they just said what would be a funny one to send, but it got through. 
Wow. So laser and... <laughs> he's fine. So a joke. Okay. Save their lives. Basically, a joke gets through, and then and then when they finally kind of get back in touch with him and everything, and like, how is laser and How is he? <laughs> oh, no. He's fine. Um, and it was the first thing they said when they see them. So, uh, yeah, we're sorry. Sorry for poor laser So that survives. But the point is, is that technology and Morse code particularly, so that's transmitting language through dots and dashes in sound, was heard for the first time in Antarctica in 1913. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Can I take us back to Mary, Queen of Scots? Yeah. Since she was so interested in the world of Elizabethan high politics and espionage and spies and the sort of murky, murky underworld of Jesuit priests and assassination attempts on Elizabeth. And the Babington plot. Yeah. Anthony Babington, a Catholic gentleman who... Uh, comes into contact with Jesuit priests and is sort of is persuaded attempt to assassinate Elizabeth. Uh, he gets caught. Uh, the plot is rumbled. It never happens. He's executed, and it leads to the downfall uh, of Mary Queen of Scots. And we're talking about 1586 here. And key here is our secret codes, because the interest here is that the communication that's going backwards and forwards between the Babington plot conspirators and Mary, Queen of Scots, is being done in secret code. And there's an ingenious way of getting these letters conveyed backwards and forwards. It's important to know that at this time, Mary is, in fact, under house arrest. And I talked about earlier on her being kept by the Shrewsburys in our last podcast on handwriting, so the Earl of Shrewsbury and his wife, Bess of Hardwick. And you can actually trace her movement from the time that she comes uh, to England to sort of various houses. But at this point, she's in the house of the staunch Protestant, Sir Amias Paulette, who is keeping pretty good tabs on her. The way she communicates in secret code is she dictates her letters to a secretary. Mm -hmm. And then it's the secretary who renders them into cipher. And then they are smuggled out in, get this, you probably know this, in barrels of ale. These are the famous casket letters. Right. They're smuggled out in barrels of ale. So ale would have been drunk during the 16th century because water was basically undrinkable, and really. Dangerous, yeah. And dangerous. And so you'd, you we should know, definitely brew, do the history of water. Brewing. We should definitely do the history of water and beer. Barrels. And barrels. Oh, yes. Yes, I want to do the history of barrels. But brewing beer um, is, was something that people would all, all have drunk beer. So you need regular sort of shipments of beer coming in. And so the barrels of beer coming in would basically good receptacles to get the letters smuggled out. And the yeah. way that you sort of think, oh, how do they put them in barrels of beer? There were these little, there was a bung that went in the barrel. It was like a little sort of leathern packet that was sort of wrapped up and then you know, it would basically be stoppered into the barrel and then could be carried off. Uh, you need the sort of the ale man or whatever they're called sort of on board, but it's delivered as part of ordinary business. Um, the only thing is, carried by Catholic um, couriers, the only thing is that all her letters going in and out were being intercepted oh, okay. by Walsingham. Yeah. And Walsingham is is Elizabeth's sort of chief spy master. I yeah. mean, an incredibly interesting figure. And he has a, a master cryptographer, the guy I talked about earlier on, Thomas Phillips. And the ingenious thing is 
that as these letters are intercepted, they're handed to Phillips, who then deciphers them through this sort of um, frequency analysis. And we've got his working papers. And we can see the letters that he's got. I've got one here, actually. Uh, This is an example of his working paper. And you can see he's basically written out, transcribed out the ciphered letter. And then you can see him sort of going through and breaking it. Um, But what happens is he not only breaks it, but he's also got people who are specially trained to actually reseal the original letter and reseal it and send it on. And the way that they get her is basically that Mary has no idea that her letters are being overseen. The whole thing hinges on a long letter sent to Mary, Queen of Scots, on the 7th of July, 1586, in which Babington basically says, you know, I have six gentlemen um, who will work to dispatch the usurper, which is basically Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, after the papal that um, excommunicates her. Elizabeth I is a, is a harlot. She's an infidel. She's basically open game to any Catholic who wants to bump her off. They will get a sort of ticket to heaven uh, afterwards. This letter is intercepted by Walsingham's people. They then read it, uh, seal it back up, and Mary then receives the letter again. And what gets her is Mary's reply. And Mary on the 17th of July, replies sending a letter in which she seals her fate and she accepts help, saying, set the six gentlemen to work. And she asks them to burn the letter. But Phillips intercepts the letter, adds the PS that you've got here with a gallows, Mm -hmm. that basically she sealed her fate and sends it on. Uh, Yeah, so secret codes, a way of communicating secretly, but also being intercepted. Yeah, and history is full of of these kind of examples of interception. There are some wonderful ones in the American Revolution and throughout history in sort of wars and times of of intense and high drama. So codes actually is a a really great way into dramatic history, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I haven't got time to talk about it now, but one of the things I came across when I was looking into this was um, it's the history of teaching blind people how to write music braille music codes essentially yeah so so they sorted out braille yeah but then there were these competing things one in spain there was another in america uh, and one in france Mm. early 20th century of of people trying to invent ways of you know doing Mm. crotchets and minims and all these sort of things for blind people to annotate music it's brilliant it's really really interesting so i would come back to the soundscape of codes I love that. I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about. We haven't even talked about Enigma. We haven't even no. talked about Versailles. No. And Louis Fourteenth. We haven't talked about opening correspondence in a way that people do not know that it has been opened and resealing yeah. it. The whole, oh, the whole history of inception. So much. Well, let's come back and do codes do. too. I think codes we, too. I think there's plenty more. We have we loads on codes. Yeah. Do you like what I did there? Loads on codes. Loads on codes. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Please do it. It matters. Subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us, the podcast, at Unexpected Pod. We are proud. We are very proud to be part of Dan Snow's History Hit Network, uh, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other 
great shows that you really, you really should be listening to. And if you want to find out more about what we've got up to, all of our crazy ideas and subjects and our mini-series... And our book that we're writing. And our book that we're rewriting. Have we told them about our book? How to be a historian. Yes. Oh, how to be a historian. Very important. That was our mini-series. Find out more on historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Uh, And before we go, we should just talk about History Masterclass. Do. History Masterclass is a little company I set up with the wonderful Susie Lipscomb. And what it does is allows you guys to come and be taught history by us. We're not just going to talk about a history book. We're actually going to teach you in a kind of seminar. We've got all sorts of really, really exciting things coming up. We've got a course on the Tudors. We've got a course on Great British Battles. We've been doing something on how to be a historian. We've got very famous people like David Olusoga, Tom Holland. What's next? Dan Jones. Not sure when this podcast's coming out, but September we have um, Jessie Child. Hello, Ah. Jessie. She's doing the Gunpowder Plot, which is going to be tremendous. Brilliant. And um, we're going to be doing some History Masterclass field trips as well. Ooh, field trips. Field trips. Um, I think take people to the National Archives, get some hands on some documents, the British Library... More hands-on documents. Um, I might take everyone down to the Mary Rose or something like that. Ooh, that will be fun. So uh, do please check out thehistorymasterclass.com and come along and we'll teach you how to be historians. Brilliant. That's it. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at thehistorymc.